Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Good to see so many people out, especially congregated in the back corners and in the shady areas. Uh, glad to see everyone here. Uh, it's been a great blessing for us to be back in the States now for a few months and have this opportunity to be here uh, with you all this morning. I want to open the word this morning, and as Pastor Brent mentioned, we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. Ephesians chapter 4. Pastor Brent led, read the verses leading up to this passage that we want to examine this morning. And I loved the verse that he read at the end, verses 20 and 21, that talk about that God is able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we ask or think, and to him be glory in the church. And those are such precious verses to us, and I think they're especially important as we consider the text, because as we're going to see when Paul talks about living a life that is worthy of our calling as Christians, living a life that is worthy of the gospel, we're going to see that we need this power from God. Because as we look and study through the text, I believe that your heart will be pricked, will be cut as mine has been. Uh, this is a passage that, as a family, we have been going through uh, started last summer, actually, memorizing Ephesians chapter 4, and then we came back to it again this summer. And as we've come back to the text, the Lord has really used these first three verses kind of to arrest my mind and to really get me to think. So if you have your scriptures with you, you can follow along with me. I'm actually going to read these first few verses uh, from the New Living Translation. I know we usually use the ESV here from the pulpit, but there's something that the New Living Translation really pulls out, and we'll get to that. So I'm going to read that, but follow along with me in your Bible. We're going to read just the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all, and living through all. As Paul writes this passage of his letter, this portion of his letter to the Ephesians, he's really hit a transition point. If you're familiar at all with the structure of the book of Ephesians, in the first three chapters, Paul kind of lays out the doctrinal content, the theological teaching. And we know so many of these verses, these truths, that Paul speaks of, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So Paul lays out these theological truths in the first three chapters, and then when he hits chapter four, he kind of transitions more into a practical section, into the application. 
This isn't the only place that Paul does this. In the book of Romans, he does the same thing. He takes chapters 1 through 11 and unpacks some deep and beautiful theological truth. And then starting in chapter 12, he says, so then, or therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, in light of everything that we have just seen in the first part, now here's the second part that's going to tell us how to live this out. And Paul does this in Ephesians in the first three chapters. He starts by laying out the spiritual blessings that we have by being in Christ. And in chapters 1, from verse 3 to 14, he just unpacks blessing after blessing that we have by being in Christ. Then right after that, and Ephesians is somewhat unique in that Paul actually records two prayers. Pastor Brent just read one of them at the end of chapter 3, but in chapter 1, from verse 15 down through the end of the chapter, Paul prays for these Ephesians believers, and he prays specifically for divine enlightenment for them. And for us, by extension, that we may have the wisdom to know Christ better, that we might understand his calling and his power in our lives. Then he goes back in chapter 2, and he talks about, okay, we've already seen the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, but this is what we were before we were in Jesus Christ. And he explains what we were and what we have now become. He said we were spiritually dead. We were enslaved to Satan and to our selfish desires. We were separated from God. We were subjects of his anger. But now we are made spiritually alive. We are seated positionally with Christ, and we are reconciled. We have peace with God and with each other. And then Paul launches again into another prayer for these Ephesian believers that God will, again, strengthen them and give them understanding. Because it's all well and good to know and to understand who we were before Christ and who we are in Jesus Christ, the blessings that we have. But I think that if we just stop at an understanding of that and don't continue with Paul's thinking into how we flesh that out, we're going to be Christians who, yes, we're secure, In our minds, we know we're saved, we know we're in Jesus Christ, we know we have all these blessings, but it won't always translate into our daily lives. We'll have the theology, the theory, without the practice. And Paul never really allows for that. In his his treatment in the book of Ephesians, he goes on, and he starts with a call, with an urging a calling of the believers, and he says, I urge you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Now, this isn't the only place that Paul mentions that or either gives this call, this urging the believers to live this way or includes it in a prayer. He does this as we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. He also talks to the Philippians. In Philippians 1 in verse 27, he says, Above all, you must live a life worthy of the gospel." Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. When he's speaking to the Colossians and he's praying for them in Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And this is our goal. 
as believers in Jesus Christ, our goal should be to flesh out, to live out the truth that we know. He also speaks to the Thessalonians, both in First and Second Thessalonians. He says, we were encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God. In Second Thessalonians, he prays for them. He says, they constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So this is kind of a recurring theme throughout many of the letters that Paul writes. The idea of living a life worthy of God, worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel. But what does that look like? How do we actually do that? I think as we look through these verses, especially these first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to see that Paul explains this. I think verse 1 we can see kind of as his opening statement. I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling in Jesus Christ. And then verses 2 and 3 and the following verses, he's going to explain what that really looks like. And Paul doesn't waste any time because in verse 2, he kind of opens it up with both barrels, if we can say that way, and he says, always be humble and gentle. Does that describe us? I know when I read these verses, especially the verse 2, and I started meditating on this, I started thinking about Okay, in, in my interactions, even in, in my own immediate nuclear family, with my wife and my kids, when my kids don't act the way I expect or want them to act, are my reactions characterized by always being humble and gentle? He goes on. He says, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And so this morning, as we look at this text, I want to focus just on four words that Paul gives as qualifiers, as characteristic of living a life worthy of the gospel. The first one that we see is humble or humility. Now, many of these words are oftentimes defined by their opposites. So when you look up the word humble or humility, you'll see a definition that might say something like this, without arrogance or without pride. Which arrogance or pride is really having an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. Humility, on the contrary, is having a modest opinion of ourselves or a deep sense of our own littleness. Now, this isn't a false humility. This isn't a self-denigrating where we kind of walk around like Eeyore. Remember from Winnie the Pooh? He's kind of always got that cloud hanging over his head and he's always just moping and talking like this. And that's, that's not the kind of humility we're talking about. And as I got to thinking about this idea of humility, you know, humility seems to be pretty particularly countercultural in modern-day America. Often, when you listen to the rhetoric or you read things, we we are more often, I believe, encouraged to be proud than to be humble. We constantly hear talk about pride. Whether it's national pride that we just celebrated our independence a week ago, our national independence. And you hear a lot of talk about national pride and how we're the greatest country on earth. I won't go into any debates 
as to whether or not that's true or the, the, the good and the bad aspects that our country may have. But the point is we're often encouraged towards a national pride. We hear a lot of different talk. So it can be anywhere from national pride to gay pride, from being proud of our ethnic heritage. And we have the whole movement in these last few days and weeks and months of Black Lives Matter coming from the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, of Breonna Taylor, of George Floyd. And that has, that has raised up a sense of, of pride in ethnic heritage. We hear talk about people who encourage everyone to be, we need to be proud of our bodies. There, there's a lot of encouragement towards pride, but we hear very little talk about humility. Oftentimes, even on an individual level, people, we, we, even as Christians, we can be unashamedly proud of our accomplishments, of our possessions, even of our kids and our grandkids, right? It seems natural. But Paul tells us here that we are to always be humble. If you listen to much political rhetoric or you spend any time on social media, you'll definitely see very quickly that humility is in short supply in our culture. We have become, I was reading several articles this week talking about how we have become a very narcissistic culture, very self-focused culture. Everyone has an opinion. And now through social media and blogs and websites, everyone has a platform to share their opinion. And usually the people who are sharing their opinions are pretty convinced that they're right that they're seeing it exactly right, and they, they, they've made it almost a mission to convince others. You get on Facebook and Instagram, and you'll see the selfie culture, right? Now, understand, I, I say this often to my students when I teach, understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that these things are inherently wrong, or that the next time you take a picture, a selfie with your family, that you should feel some sort of a twinge of guilt. But I th- it's just to highlight the fact that in our culture, humility seems to be a very counter-cultural value. And it's not just in our culture. It was the same at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. The Greco-Roman culture was also very strong, had placed a very strong emphasis on pride, both corporate and individual. In fact, when you read John MacArthur's commentary on Ephesians, he noted that this idea of humility was so foreign to the Greco-Roman world that neither the Greek language nor the language of Rome, the Latin language, even had a word for humility. The concept was so foreign. And in fact, the word that is used here is a, a word that kind of cobbled together two words to make a compound word that means poor-spirited. Someone who's low of spirit, which to the Greek mind and the Roman mind was, it was ridiculous. Who would want to be that? And this term was often used and applied to Christians in that context, and it was a derogatory term. Oh yeah, these are these, you know, kind of like we would say, uh, you know, just a a weak-minded, a spineless person, someone who can't stand up for themselves. But I think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
And so this aspect of humility. And I think it's, it, it's not coincidental that Paul starts with this when he gets to the practical section. Because he talked in the first couple chapters, as we mentioned, about who we were before we were in Christ and now who we are in Jesus Christ. And really, having that understanding is the only way that we can truly be humble. Someone has said about humility that humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking of ourselves less. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ who he is, and what he has done, it produces a great humility in us. Because when I see him as he is, then I see myself for who I am. And the standard is not comparing myself to others. Paul, I believe it was to the Corinthians, he spoke about that, and he said, comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves, they are not wise. We need to measure ourselves by the standard, the perfect standard, who is Jesus Christ. And when we measure ourselves according to that standard, then we really realize how little and insignificant we are. And I think this is why Paul lists humility first, because it is the foundation for all of the, the other virtues that he's going to list subsequently. And again, it's not just here in Ephesians, because when you think about in Romans, we, we mentioned the verses in Romans 12 that we all know. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Don't be conformed or pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then in the next verse, Paul says, by the grace that is given to me, I say unto you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. So this humility is really the basis, the foundation for all of the other virtues and for fleshing out a life that is worthy of the gospel. But Paul doesn't stop here just with humility. He goes on. He goes on to say, always be humble and gentle. Now again, when we think about gentleness, it's being moderate or kind in our attitudes and our behaviors, being mild. This word, again, is contrasted with its opposite, which is harshness, being unpleasantly rough or jarring to the senses, being cruel or severe in our dealings with others. Think of your own interactions over this past week. Have they been characterized by humility and gentleness? Or have they been characterized more by a, an elevated opinion of yourself which can lead you to being harsh, to being unpleasantly jarring or rough to someone's senses? I think we see, again, a lot of this. We listen to the national rhetoric. We listen to the political speeches we read what's on the internet and we see just a lot of this in our culture, a lot of this harshness, a lot of the jarring to the senses. And while that is popular and it is normal in the course of American life, we are called as believers in Jesus Christ to be different. 
We are called as believers in Christ to be humble first and then to be gentle. After humility and gentleness, Paul talks about patience. The word is also at times in the scriptures translated as long-suffering. James uses this word to describe the prophets. And when you think about the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the others, who in the face of a godless culture preached the message and were rejected, were beaten, were thrown in prison, were mistreated, but they continued to share the message of God. This this word carries the idea of a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and doing that without complaint or irritation. Now, when I think about that and I look at my own life and my own interactions, when something comes into my life, a situation or a person comes into my life that jostles me, that bumps me, that kind of pushes me off track. How do I respond? Can I remain calm in my spirit? Some languages actually will translate this word idiomatically by saying it means to remain seated in one's heart to keep one's heart from jumping. You've probably seen that, right? When somebody gets agitated, they come flying out of their chair. They're, 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 ready, they're, they're ready to combat, whether it's verbally or physically. But this idea of patience carries calmness. Even when I'm provoked, even when I'm facing difficulty and misfortune, I'm calm in my spirit. I'm not irritated. I'm not worked up. I'm not complaining These are all attitudes that follow on the heels of humility. And the last one Paul says in Ephesians is he says, making allowance for each other's faults. I think the word that we could use to describe this is the word tolerant. Now tolerance, in some circles, it has a negative connotation, especially in our Christian circles, because people want to use the word tolerant to excuse and to justify any sort of behavior and any sort of lifestyle. And when a person stands up and says, that's not right, they say, oh, you're not tolerant. You've just got to let everything go. Now, we are not saying by saying that we as Christians are supposed to be tolerant, we're not saying that we're supposed to have this, you know, laissez-faire attitude, just, ah, okay, you know, we'll we'll just let everything slide. But it has the idea of making allowance for or putting up with opinions or behaviors that we don't necessarily agree with. Something that we would look at and say, that's not right. And when we see something that's not right, it causes pain, unpleasant or uncomfortable feelings that well up within us. I think a good illustration of this, have you ever seen a mother dog with her puppies? Have you ever, have you ever seen that? A mother dog that has maybe a few days old or week old puppies, and you watch that mother dog, she's just laying there. And I mean, these puppies are crawling all over her. They're biting her ears, they're pulling her tail, they're, and, and she just kind of lays there and is very tolerant. The word tolerant, we see it in several different uh, 
different subsets of our world. For example, in the medical world, we talk about someone who has a high pain tolerance. They're able to put up with a great deal of pain without needing medication, without complaining, hitting that little button that's calling the nurse you know, in the hospital, having a high pain tolerance. Or in engineering, when someone speaks about tolerance, it's an allowable variation or deviance from the standard. So if there's any engineers here, they can tell us, when, when you're building something, there's a certain standard. But nothing is ever perfect, so there's a, there's a built-in, a little bit of a, a deviation where it can be just a tiny bit off, but still okay. And I think this idea of tolerance speaks to the expectations that we have of others. And again, as I've been thinking about this in the context of my own family, sometimes I think, okay, what do I expect of my children? Yes, I want my children to do what's right. I want them to behave. I want them to leave, lead godly lives. But I can at times be very inflexible and rigid. And when my children do not react in the way that I expect them to react or do what I have asked them to do the first time, they don't just jump up and do it, I can become intolerant. I can become impatient. And I think it's interesting because as we look at this, what Paul is saying in this passage, he says the foundation of all of this is humility. And when we are truly humble, it will push us to be gentle, to be patient, to be tolerant. And when we live with lives that are characterized by those values, the end result of that is going to be unity. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. But on the flip side, when someone is characterized by pride or arrogance, which leads them to be harsh, to be irritated and complaining, to insist on having things their way, and everybody needs to see it the way I see it, rather than producing unity, it's going to produce division. Look simply at the state of our nation right now, how polarized we are, how divided we are. Is it any wonder when we are characterized by this arrogance, a brashness, we hear irritation when things aren't our way? As believers in Christ, we need to be careful that our cultural values, what is normal and accepted in our culture, does not rub off on our spiritual values. But we need to follow what the Apostle Paul says in living a life that is worthy of the gospel. A life that is characterized by humility, first and foremost. And a humility that produces in us a practical outworking of gentleness, of patience, of tolerance. And when we live in that way, fleshing out those qualities, we will be unified we will realize, as Paul said, that there is, we are one body. And there is only one spirit and one God, and we come to the one God through Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator. And we all share in the same spiritual blessings. 
So my question for myself and for you is are we living worthy lives, lives worthy of the gospel in this way, in the way that Paul talks about? Are our daily interactions, whether within the context of our own family, with friends, with coworkers, online, are our daily interactions characterized by these qualities? Humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance. Is our church characterized by these things? And as we close this morning, I just want to ask two questions, and I want these questions to kind of percolate in your mind. And I encourage you to talk about these questions, whether it's in the context of your family or small groups, but think about these two questions. First of all, what would be different if we as believers in Jesus Christ consciously Put these four values into practice. Humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance. What would be different in our families? What would be different in our Christian community if we fleshed out these values on a regular basis? And the second question is, how would fleshing these values out, how would that impact the spread of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom of God in our society? We talk about and we observe and we, if I can say, bemoan the fact that our world, our nation, our society is becoming seemingly increasingly post-Christian and is going farther away from God. But what would it look like if we as believers in Jesus Christ truly began to flesh out these values? How would that impact the spread of the gospel in our lives, in our communities, in the area around us? This is what we are called to do as Christians. We are called to live this kind of a life, a life that Jesus, or that Paul describes as worthy of the gospel, worthy of God and of his calling. And as we mentioned at the beginning, to flesh out these four values on a regular basis, because Paul said, always be this, To do that requires the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why as we look this morning and as we began, Paul says, and he offers this prayer, and he says, now unto him, God, through Christ, through the work of the Spirit, unto him who is able to do, not just to the level, but exceedingly above all that we can ask or think. To him be glory in the church. Let's ask God to produce these values in our lives. Let's ask God, far above what we could ever even imagine, to produce in us a humility and a gentleness and a patience and a tolerance so that we can live worthy lives and bring glory to him through his church. Let's close in a word of prayer, and I'll turn it over to Pastor Brett. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word, as the psalmist said, is a lamp to our feet, guiding our path. Lord, you know that as I look at this passage my heart is stricken 
by how I fall short in these areas. How I fall short of being humble and gentle and patient and tolerant. And God, I ask for your forgiveness individually and corporately, God, as a member of the body of Christ, forgive us for the ways that we have not fleshed out this kind of a life, a life that is worthy of the gospel. And God, I pray through the power of your spirit who can do abundantly above all we could ask or think that you will fill our hearts with humility so that we can flesh out these values, so that we can be united in Jesus Christ and so that we can show to a watching world what a life worthy of you and of your gospel and of your calling looks like. Empower us to that end, God, that you might be glorified through your church. And we will be careful to give you all the glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.